Please pray with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Michael asked me this morning before the service why we aren't doing an ordination tomorrow. For those of you who weren't here, we had a wedding yesterday, baptism today, but no ordination tomorrow. We're cutting it off after today. There are aspects of the human experience that point beyond ourselves, point to something bigger than we are, something eternal. The longing for justice is one of those things. The sort of deep-seated belief that we all hold that justice exists, that it should be enacted, even if we disagree on the details of what justice is, we're sort of born with that primal instinct that it must exist. Children don't need to be convinced that fairness is a real thing. They might argue about what is fair, but they're born with the belief that there is some external justice that can be appealed to. Even those who think that justice is merely a product of ourselves, something that we've birthed out of our own hearts and societies, when you touch on the particular aspects of justice they care about, you'll discover that they believe those are just as universal as any others. My point is, is that there are parts of our experience that point to something transcendent, bigger than we are, eternal. The desire for glory is one of those aspects of the human experience. One of those things that points to something beyond ourselves. And I don't mean here the longing for a particular glorious moment, like an Olympian winning a medal or something like that. I mean something deeper and bigger and richer than that. I mean the desire itself for transcendence. The desire itself for something bigger and thicker and heavier than we have. The desire to experience beauty. The desire to experience life in all of its richness and all of its value. The longing for these things, these moments that we only taste in very small amounts and only very infrequently. The longing for that deep richness and heaviness where everything that life could be is flourishing in its fullness. It's that sort of longing that animates some of the best scenes in literature. I think about the end of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the White Witch has been vanquished and all of the imprisoned animals are set free, those turned to stone, brought back to life, and the world is as it should be, and the children are seated on the thrones in glory and power. It's one of those scenes where you, you see there, this is what glory looks like. It's that longing for glory that probably animates a lot of the Olympians looking for a medal, but it's much deeper and richer than that. It's that longing for glory that animates us when we go to concerts and we experience near worship in what's going on there. Or when we go to athletic games and it's this collective experience of transcendence, something bigger than any of us. That longing for glory is likely what animates many of us as we approach times like Christmas, hoping and longing from the depths of our soul that this will be a moment when the weight and the dignity and the beauty of life is actualized in our family. That longing for glory is in all of our hearts. But life has a way of killing, or at least quenching, 
that longing for glory. Children aren't born cynics and pragmatists. They come into the world, and when you actually tell them the fairy tale, they believe that it's possible. When you tell them the story of a perfect family where love abounds in fullness and peace, they believe that it's possible. But as we grow, the reality of life quenches what seems too idealistic, too much like a fairy tale. We learn to settle for something less. We resign ourselves to what's actually achievable rather than what we dream might be. It's true that we still continue to long for and hunger for that glory in small ways, but mostly we more or less take what we can get. We become content with the possible. We settle for what we can reasonably expect. With that in mind, listen again to Romans 8, 18 through 25. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The testimony of this passage is that there is something waiting for us. Something waiting for us that it is so, that's so big, so heavy, so beautiful, so valuable, so substantial and glorious, so incredible that all of creation is on tiptoe, leaning forward to see it, groaning after it, Creation itself is waiting eagerly for a moment of revelation, a moment of revealing that startlingly is about us. All of creation is longing for the sons of God, the daughters of God, to be revealed for what they truly are. Paul depicts rocks and trees and mountains and clouds longing to see your and my unveiling in glory. Something so rich and deep and valuable that creation is yearning for it, yearning to be set free from its corruption and futility, yearning to be able to rejoice in the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. Paul is referring to something that's alluded to throughout the scriptures. It's something so astounding and outlandish that it's almost unthinkable. It would be blasphemous for us to say this if God hadn't said it first. But he's alluding to this thing that sort of is behind the scriptures and breaks free at key moments. In Genesis, it breaks free where we discover that we were supposed to be the very spitting image of God. Little co-creators 
wandering around the earth, filling it like God did, acting like God, his right-hand man and right-hand woman taking charge of creation in his name, kind of like a child sitting at the desk of his father or mother pretending to be CEO, and yet it's for real. He says, you can do it. Have the company for a year. It's staggering. In Exodus, we learn that we were supposed to be kings and priests, ruling and shepherding all that is around us. In the Psalms, we hear that we've been crowned with glory and authority, that we're nearly angelic beings, only a hair lower than God, staggeringly, that we are sons of God himself. And the prophets, it breaks free and we learn that we were meant to be betrothed to God, his lover. Who deserves that? Elevated into a marriage of sorts with him. We learn in the prophets that he longs to dwell in our midst, walking around with us, writing his name on us, saying, you are mine, you're mine, you're mine. In the Gospels and in the writings of Paul, we learn that we're not meant to be slaves or servants, but instead we are meant to be friends of God, co-heirs with Christ of the very kingdom of God, living temples of God, Walking around is living conduits between heaven and earth, full of the Spirit of God. People seated on thrones in heaven with crowns. Over the course of Revelation, you see this beautiful movement where at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it's angels who are leading the worship of heaven. But by the end of the book of Revelation, the angels have bowed and left the scene in its humanity leading the worship of the entire cosmos in heaven. This is what we were called for. Paul goes so far as to say that we will judge the angels, that they will leave the scene back down as we take their place and rule everything in God's name. There's an old Jewish belief that Lucifer fell exactly because he hated this vision for the destiny of humanity that humanity was to be so highly elevated and over the angels. And he said, I cannot abide this. I think one of the most staggering statements of all, 2 Peter 1, we find that we were meant to be participants, partakers, sharers in the divine nature. The very divinity of God within us. Like I said, these statements are so staggering, so outlandish, that they would be blasphemous for us to say if God had not said them first to us. God's design for humanity is to elevate us into the highest level of glory where we operate in his name, co-regents with him, ruling over creation, leading the worship of the heavens, filled with the very Spirit of God, that Spirit that dances between Father and Son, shooting through us and enveloping us, the power of God within us. The picture is astounding. Honestly, the deepest desire that you have ever had, the deepest desire that I have ever had for power, for glory, for dignity, for pleasure is too small. The deepest desire you have had for worth and for meaning is smaller than 
what God intends. Smaller by many, many, many times. The deepest longing we have for fulfillment in our lives to have purchase and meaning pales in comparison to what God actually intends. The idea that you would receive into your very being the very divinity of God. Consider that. This is that glory that Paul is alluding to. We tend to reduce the gospel. We tend to make it so much smaller than it is. We tend to reduce it to Jesus died for my sins because he took my punishment and therefore I'm forgiven. That is true and it's staggering in its own right. But full weight of the gospel says that even though we failed completely at that glorious design that God had for us, even though we failed completely at it, Jesus accomplished it as a human. And because we are forgiven and joined to him in our baptisms, that design that God had has not been lost. By being incorporated into the Son, we are brought back into what God desires for all of humanity. Because of his faithfulness, his death, and his resurrection, this is still ours. The full weight of the gospel is that those who are joined to Jesus, those who are joined to him in their baptisms and faith and repentance, those who are joined to him still have this before them. The purification The forgiveness of sins is for a purpose, not just so that we would be free of the shame and guilt, but so that we can participate in the life of God in this way again. Right now, of course, we live in a world marked by suffering, a world marked by futility, a world marked by corruption. These are the words that Paul uses in this passage in Romans 8, suffering, futility, corruption. Our sin broke creation. It brought slavery and pain, futility and pollution into God's good world. It brought those things, futility, suffering, slavery, pain, corruption into our own bodies. It brought it into our own hearts. We who are meant to be God's agents who would bring flourishing and freedom did the opposite. We were meant to bring glory and freedom to creation. And yet we brought corruption and futility and bondage. We did the opposite of what we were supposed to have done. Because of that, suffering prevails. Creation is in chains. But that very state is why Paul says that all of creation is waiting with eager longing to see us revealed for what we are. Because in that moment, All that we've done to one another in the world will be undone. And creation itself will be set free. Creation is longing for our revelation. The moment when we are revealed for what we are. So that it will be set free. Jesus, the very God who became human, accomplished what we were to have accomplished. He defeated the enemy that we unleashed on the world. He defeated death itself by taking it into his very own being and absorbing it and conquering it. And so now the whole world is waiting for the moment when that plan that he enacted and accomplished is realized fully and finally. When all of us are set free into the glory that's to come. The the creation is waiting for the moment when our incorporation into the life of Jesus is revealed. When our bodies are transformed. When the fact that we have been adopted as sons and daughters is seen by everyone. When all the angelic beings 
have to acknowledge that God has done this glorious and beautiful thing. Creation is waiting for that moment. Because at that moment, freedom will replace bondage. For all of creation, but also for all of us. Freedom will replace bondage. Flourishing will replace futility. Purity and beauty will replace pollution and corruption. The whole world's on tiptoe, waiting and yearning for this moment, longing for it, longing for us to be revealed in glory. That's the picture that Paul's talking about. That's what he's trying to get us to see. You see, in light of that, that it could never be a Christian response to become a cynic. It could never be a Christian response to just to resign ourselves to, I guess this is the best that we can get. It could never be, and I'm not saying that we don't all do that. It's just that we need to repent of those things. Because the picture that is waiting for us is a picture that is so glorious and so big that Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, all of the evil that humanity has done, all of the evil that we have done, the full weight of sin and death and ugliness, all of it, imagine all of it brought together, placed on one side of a balance scale and the glory to be revealed on the other and the full weight of human suffering and death and war and lust and idolatry, all of it doesn't move the scale against the glory that's to come. The glory that's to come so overshadows it that the suffering that precedes it is as if it's nothing. Our posture then, even in the midst of the periods of suffering and futility, our posture is to be an eager yearning for what's to come. A patient hope, a waiting, a growing in hunger. Resignation is not a Christian movement. Growing in hope is. Growing in hope as we see what's ahead of us. Growing in hope as it draws nearer and nearer. Growing in joy and excitement for what will dwarf all of the evil that we've experienced when it comes in its fullness. This is the Christian movement. But we can only have this sort of patience, this sort of hope, this sort of eagerness if we remember what awaits us. So oftentimes we don't set our eyes on that. We're just looking down at the day in front of us. And therefore, resignation and frustration dominate. And Paul's saying, pick your eyes up. See the glory to come. And when we see the glory to come, we begin to groan for it, to stand on tiptoe with all of creation, to lean towards it. Because the glory of what's to come sets us free. The glory of what's to come sets us free from the futility of so much of what we do. We can hold our dreams very, very lightly when we realize what's to come. It's not that we necessarily have to throw them away, but we can hold them so lightly because they are so small in comparison to the full weight of what's to come. It sets us free to seek to work for the kingdom of God in this world because we recognize that it's not on us to fix things. That glory is coming when all will be revealed and so we can act as if it's already here and work for it and lean towards it and fight for it, but without the pressure of it rest on your shoulders to bring it about. 
It sets us free to evangelize, to love, to serve, to seek to grow in holiness and love. It sets us free to lean towards God in all of our, with all of our weight because we actually don't need to fix things in the end. That's God's job. He will accomplish this. But perhaps what I want to close with is simply that the reality of what's to come, not only does it set us free, and not only does it enable us to actually have hope and patience, the reality of what's to come makes us aware very simply of the fact that we are loved by God. Consider this. Consider that your life, what He desires for you, is bigger and more substantial and more glorious than anything you've ever imagined. Consider that He wants that full weight of glory for you. That that's His longing for you. That you be elevated to that position of beauty and strength and power and glory. And then ask yourself the question, He wants that for me? Why me? And the very simple reality is because He loves you. The weight of what's to come is a testimony of God's love for those He has created. It's a testimony for the fact that he is not satisfied with your life as it is. Not because he is asking you to work harder, but because he's saying, would you trust that I have more for you than you expect? Would you receive from me what I have for you? And so as we walk away today, as you consider the glory to come, let it be a testimony to you of the very simple fact that God loves you. That he longs for you to be flourishing in fullness and glory. Amen.